This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Molly Dektar, author of The Ash Family, which tells the story of a young woman who abandons her mother and college plans to join an off-the-grid community in the mountains of North Carolina. The protagonist, known as Barry in the outside or fake world, but renamed Harmony once she enters the, quote, real world of the community, is grappling to find a place of belonging. With the Ash family, despite hard circumstances of living off the land, having no money, and no access to medicine, Harmony finds a place that she thinks she can call her own, until things start to unravel. We began the interview with Dektar discussing the genesis of the Ash family novel. The book came from my love of nature. I was always so, so interested in nature and getting out into the world and having these experiences, hiking and walking in the woods. There's a lot of nature in the book that I myself lived, especially the sheep farming. I worked on a bunch of farms before I even thought I would write a novel about it. And um, I was at one point responsible for a herd of 60 goats in the Italian Alps. And then I also did a lot of lambing and um, herding sheep in Italy and Norway. And this was after college when I just felt a real sort of inarticulate longing to return to the land. And when I later read about 1970s back to the land hippies, I really identified with their a similar urge where you just feel like you want to go connect with the dirt. So nature came first. And then the first chapter I wrote of the Ash family turned out to be the second chapter in the book. And it's the the chapter where the main character meets the cult recruiter at a bus stop. And he convinces her to come to his community off the grid in the mountains of North Carolina. And (laughs) this was kind of... For me, it was something I sort of hoped would happen. Sounds crazy. But when I was traveling in Italy and Norway, I felt I was having all these very isolated experiences. I was really only depending on myself. And I always thought, wouldn't it be interesting if I were invited to a community like this? Like, it was important to me as I was writing the book that there'd be something admirable to the Ash family. So something, you know, something good about their approach to nature and something thoughtful and caring about the way they work with their animals and their land. North Carolina is a beautiful state, but you grew up in the city. So how did you end up sort of going from a city life to being really interested in sheep herding and getting to Europe to do that? Western North Carolina is where the book is set. It is a place that is full of amazing off-the-grid communities and farms. And when I was growing up, I got to visit Turtle Island, a famous intentional community headed by a man named Eustace Conway, who's kind of amazing nature person. And Elizabeth Gilbert wrote a book about him 
before Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> so there's that. And then there are other communities, wild roots out in North Carolina that are truly inspiring, like radical communities of people who live off the grid. So I was interested in what was happening in Western North Carolina in these communities, um, which is part of why I set the book over there instead of, you know, in my hometown or elsewhere. And as for the, you know, why did I go to Europe? I was able to get a, a grant to travel. And I always said, you know, I want to talk to farmers about their experiences with climate change. It's hard to, to make it more definite than that. I always love to try new things without much thought. <laughs> um, and that's how I ended up in those countries. Tell me a little bit about writing what became the second chapter. And this is where we see the main character. Her name is Beryl, Barry for short, in what is then referred to later as the fake world. And she had just gotten off a plane. She was set to go to college. She grew up um, pretty poor with a single mom. Her dad was missing, had a kind of difficult relationship with her mom and was just felt like she had to go to college. It was just the path her mom was kind of setting out for her. But then when she was about to get on the plane to go to college, she couldn't get on the plane. She just knew it wasn't the right path. And she ended up at a bus stop outside of Asheville, North Carolina. What were you thinking about when you wrote this chapter? Although I was not motivated to write the book because I'm interested in cults, nature came first and the cult sort of came later. I had also been researching cult recruitment processes. And what's so amazing about the way that lots of cults recruit people is they get you breaking rules right away and they get you sort of living a different kind of life than what you thought was possible immediately. So here in the book, they she meets this man, he seems to understand her very well, and then right away they steal some clothes and then they go camp in the woods and she just feels like another way of life is possible. And growing up, I think I write about this as well, like when hurricanes would hit North Carolina, not understanding the way that they cause damage and really hurt people. I loved that sense, you know, the lights are out and you have the hurricane lantern up and life is different from usual. And that feeling, I was very driven by that in writing this, this first short story that then became the novel. I realized once, once they've headed out, I wanted to follow the character and see what happened. Um, but yeah, that process of, so you think you're living your normal life, and then someone comes along who shows you that all the rules that are in place, you don't have to follow them. You can, you can live a different life. That's, that's what drove that first chapter. Can you talk a little bit about the Ash family? So when Harmony arrives there, what does she find? Can you describe kind of the scene and then maybe a little bit about the social structure of the Ash family? So Harmony arrives on the farm and she sees all the family members having a meal together in their kitchen. They have very simple buildings arranged in a square and her first impression is she's surprised by what a tidy sort of old-fashioned farm it is when she expected something maybe with buses and teepees. She meets a woman named Sarah who's been at the farm for a very long time and she keeps hearing about the leader, Dice, the family's father, but she doesn't get to meet him for some time. And um, her first act is Sarah brings her out to take care of the sheep which is 
you know, she's supposed to keep track of them and herd them and they're running away. And this is a truly terrifying experience when I worked with animals, when you feel like the herd has gone away from you and you have no idea where they are. You just know you're going to be running for a long time and extremely nervous. And this is, <laughs> I'm not like a, a lifetime shepherd person. So I don't, I always felt a bit thrown into things and you have to, you have to be willing to really put a lot of physical effort into working with animals this way. Um, so, so then after, after this incident with the sheep, she finally meets the family's leader, Dice, and he explains to her the family's ideology and has a conversation with her where, you know, he says, this is the best conversation I've ever had about our beliefs. And that line is from a friend of mine got involved in a group that, again, it's not really a cult, but you could say it is by certain, certain definitions, a group that was really focused on meditation. And she told me she talked to the, the leader of this meditation group who said, this is the best conversation I've ever had about meditation. She found that incredibly flattering and moving. And that hyperbolic language I, I put in right away. It's interesting how far flattery will get you <laughs> as a yes. cult recruiter. They call often the first phase is called love bombing where you just feel surrounded by positive energy on all sides and you feel seen for the first time in your life. Um, so that, that also characterizes her first days on the farm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So as she's there, there's kind of this sense that while they're free and living on the land and and working together as a community, there's definitely a leader. His name is Dice. He has his own room. He has pine-scented soap where the rest of them don't really have. You know, that's one of the few luxuries that he has. He's kind of an earth firster type. I mean, they, 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 as you learn more and more about them, you learn that they're doing some environmental terrorism, perhaps, to save old growth forests or things like that. Tell me a little bit about Dice. Despite what I said about writing the first chapter, which is now the second chapter of the book, um, and how I was interested in cult recruiting, I mean, the the interest, the obsession that sustained the rest of the book was this nature element. And in a way, Dice is an outgrowth of nature. If you care about climate and environment, you know it's this immense problem that requires huge amounts of cooperation in a way that humanity is not very good at doing. Um, and it's an existential threat to all of us, but also perhaps several generations down the line will have to deal with the worst effects and so on. So there's nothing forcing us to take the climate seriously, unless you've lived through a, you know, a terrible flood or a fire, you know, these things that are happening. In general, you can continue life as usual. And so the family itself was, and Dice in particular, there are ways of sort of holding harmony to the fire and forcing her to care about climate and to commit more and more 
and with Dice in particular, on a craft level. I wanted him to constantly push her to make harder and harder choices to remain committed to the family. And so in a way, he's an abstract person. She likes Bay, the recruiter. She sleeps with Bay. She has a crush on him. He's more of a human. And Dice is the idea that holds the family together. And um, into his mouth, I put a lot of my favorite climate stories and earth history stories. He talks about snowball earth, for example, which is a, a theory that at one point the entire earth was locked in ice um, as an, you know, a sort of runaway climate change feedback that probably did happen. And so I, I felt like if people aren't that interested in the plot of the book or the characters, at least they'll learn some interesting climate stuff from it. Um, and that, that really motivated his character. And so I'm not sure if he succeeds as a charismatic leader the way people want in a, in a cult story, but he is, he's an outgrowth of, of climate itself trying to force, force people to take it seriously. I don't know how long had passed when Harmony had been there, but a girl had come who she recognized from Durham, from her, from her old life. And this woman, you know, was told you can stay three days for the rest of your life. And she chose to leave. And that that part always kind of blows my mind is that they're willing to have someone be there for three days and then let them go because they've still seen enough to probably detect like something isn't totally right here. This is not just people living freely in the woods completely without some duress. I mean, they th- th- there's something there that you could sense. And, and duress might even be too strong a word. But it's amazing to me that they let people go, but they let this one girl go. And there was a risk because she knew her from her old life that she would contact her ex-boyfriend and tell her where she was. And she knew that when she left. So I guess the first thing I'm interested about is is the risk of letting someone go after three days and what you think about that. It's important for the family to only have people there who who feel like you know they've joined voluntarily, who aren't coerced into it. But it is a risk they always take with the letting people go. You're totally right about that. I didn't even consider that. I mean, I think that a lot of us perhaps have been on you know, have like have seen other people's families or visited places or, you know, been in touch with different ways of life. We're like, oh, that's not really for me. You know, I don't like, you know, that family, they tend to argue a lot. I don't think I could manage with that. Or, oh, I visited this place, but I don't think I could ever live there. And hopefully, I think the family comes off that way where it seems consensual enough. It seems like a strict off the grid group but not to the point where you'd start calling the cops or anything like that. And I do think there's there's a lot that we are willing to put up with if we think other people are willing to put up with it as well. Um, this is, you know, the, the power of suggestion and and trying to fit in and trying to be consistent are extremely, extremely strong. So even if someone comes for three days and leaves, you know, hopefully they'll think to themselves, I couldn't have managed that, but I understand why some people would. And yeah, so that's the the three days or the rest of your life. I mean, you want the people who are really excited to be there. It's hard to imagine 
if they didn't allow anyone ever to leave, perhaps they would have bigger problems. Oh, and one other thing I'll say about this too is a lot of um, cults, the, the leaders will frequently use a kind of rhetoric that's like, prove me wrong, I don't care, you know, question me, question everything, this fake openness. And that's another element that could play in as well, kind of, everyone is free, we're on the land and we're totally free here. Um, you, you know, you chose to be here and that's something that they can use over time um, to, to make sure that people stay. There's also this sort of legend, never quite confirmed about what happens to people who leave. They don't use the word leave. They use the word run away. Yeah, legend is exactly right. There's sort of whispered about people who have run away and met their ends. It's out in the fake world, you know, as they call it. It's very, very dangerous to go out there. Um, and one one element that's always kind of a lurking menace is the family has these very, very large dogs, Grand Pyrenees dogs. <laughs> I got to work with dogs like the, like these when I was working on a sheep farm and brought some of that straight into the book. For example, um, there are all these beware of dog signs around. This was in Italy. And the farmer told me that the beware of dog si uh, beware of dog signs were there not so that other dogs would come in and harm the Grand Pyrenees dogs, but because the Grand Pyrenees dogs would kill any dog that came through. So it's kind of a like protect yourself because our dogs are in charge. And so yeah, so there's this feeling that if you leave, you'll be tracked. If you leave, the fake world will eat you up the scale of her skepticism throughout the novel, you could really plot it on a chart. And it's true that sometimes what she's told to do or what she hears about have a negative effect where it makes her begin to doubt more what the community is doing. Um, at the same time, there's so much that I think we're all willing to do, even when we have doubts about it. The family is full of stories. Storytelling is a key part of their the way they engage as a group and these sort of surreal stories about what happens when people leave are as powerful as stories can be in sorting out the ideology and, and constraining people's behavior. So when Lindsay, this is the woman who came and left after three days, and she came with her boyfriend and her boyfriend stayed, and she she did go back, we learn, and find Isaac, Harmony's boyfriend, and then when Bay goes out to find new family members, is what he calls it, he comes back with Isaac. So Isaac, we're not really sure if he's there to, you know, at first when we see him, we don't know if he's there to try to get Harmony back out into the world, if he's there with a message from the mother. But can you talk a little bit about creating this and it's always a risk, I think, sometimes to have coincidence in books. It's it's this balance between coincidence and what moves the story along. And I'm wondering if you ever thought about that and um, just bringing Isaac in, what that brought to the narrative. Yes, coincidence is tricky in books. And I was hoping to head off some of that by having Lindsay appear earlier. So they realize when when Lindsay's there um, in the spring or summer, they um, 
they realize that they know some of the same people in Durham and Isaac's name comes up. And so then when he does appear, there's an understanding that Lindsay indicated that um, she met a friend of his. So that prevents it from being pure coincidence. On the other hand, I it's a it's a challenge to, you know, during these two years, Barry Harmony, same person, um, pretty much never leaves the farm. She's on an island in a, in a way, away from other inputs. And so people coming in and visiting have an incredibly shattering effect on that, um, on her normal existence. And nothing could be more shattering than Isaac. And so him coming will always, you know, feels a bit like a contrivance, like someone sort of falling down from the heavens or something, because they have such a close relationship and because he was so central to her old life and also one of the key people she escaped from. And so these scenes, they again force her to consider what is it, what it is that she cares about, why she's there, why she's so committed to Dice and his vision. And, um, and they also talk about different kinds of activism. There's a way that, you know, Isaac is trying to, to live rightly in society. And she now believes that the only way to really address climate change and to live properly is to separate yourself out. And she sees something incredibly admirable and important about this monkish existence she's leading. Um, and so their conversations are both sort of emotional and romantic and also focused on, on the bigger ideas in the book. It's interesting, too, because she has a moment there. It's just a line, but what it encapsulates was so interesting to me was that before, in her life before, in the fake world, Isaac was kind of the dominant one in the relationship. He had the ideas. He was more risque. He was kind of living on the edge. And she has a moment when he's there where she's kind of saying to herself, I'm more radical than him now. Why was that important? You're right. It's so important. And a lot of the book has to do with people negotiating their own power and power structures. Who's in charge? You know, is it the person who is joining the group who has the resources and, you know, um, the energy to be a participant who's in charge? Or is it Dice, the leader? You know, is it the recruiter? And then um, as we're going through, too, it's Dice really depends on everyone's commitment and trust because he knows he's leading um, certain actions, as you mentioned, the kind of um, uh, illegal protests and sabotage that they commit. You know, there's there's a lot of mutual trust and, and also whatever the negative version of trust is when people have dirt on each other. Um, and so here's another moment of, and I would say that's a, that's a big theme for me in the book, trying to figure out the different power dynamics and who owns who. And even at, I think it's the end of the third chapter before she's come onto the farm, she thinks victoriously after she gets to kiss Bay, the recruiter, she thinks, I thought I'd gotten something from him. And she doesn't realize that this kiss that she thought she got out of him was actually, again, him convincing her to do something. So, so yes, this, um, this moment with Isaac, it is a key moment when she realizes that she has become almost like a forbiddingly committed person to a community that's really far outside most of our, you know, mainstream existences. And 
that feeling of triumph and of identifying a new strength in herself, I think is a huge reason why she would want to stay with the family. It would be hard even for someone not as astute as Dice, another member, to know that there was some connection between Isaac and Harmony that didn't just happen with him, his arrival. When he leaves, Dice, he's really pressuring her because he knows that something was up with them. And it's kind of like you were talking about the power dynamics. It's kind of like he has dirt on her, but he doesn't really know how much or what it means. And that's where she sort of has to prove her loyalty. They're going out on another environmental action and they need money. And that's when she tips her hand that although she doesn't have any, her mother has some assets that they could go steal from her house. She gives them basically all the information they need to go in the middle of the night and steal from her mother. And when they leave to go, she realizes, you know, she doesn't have any control about how that interaction might go. I mean, will she be home? Will she not be home? Will they hurt her? Will they tell them that they're coming in her stead? Like, what will happen? The confrontation with Dice was a moment where she had to really prove where her allegiance lies. And then for her, it was a real and true separation, although she'd been there for a long time from her past life and her mother. Her mother has these valuable jewelry that when I think about the novel now, it's some of the more, it's almost fairy tale that she has this necklace and these earrings that are family heirlooms. And those are the things of value, even though they're a rather, you know, I'd say lower middle-class family, they have a few precious objects. Um, And I imagine sort of like the, you know, the treasure box and the dragon, it's almost not literary fiction anymore. Um, and these are the things she, Barry or Harmony, wants to sign away to Dice. I, another source for me as I was composing this was reading um, post-cult forums and message boards where a lot of people are thinking through what they did, you know, while they were in cults and now they're out, you know, supporting each other. And people are... Truly, you know, when you're very, very committed to something, you are willing to do anything for it, anything at all. And this is a point where I believe if the reader wasn't skeptical of Harmony before, it it really shows how deeply involved she is with the family and how far she's separated herself out from mainstream norms. At the same time, there's a something very non-materialistic about this. There, it, it's complicated because she almost feels that people, you know, what's valuable and what isn't valuable is totally messed up. So there's a way that beyond just convincing herself that she should do anything she can for Dice and the family, she's also really bought into their value system, which is at odds with the way that these precious jewels may be valued outside the family. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I am choosing a passage from Austerlitz by W.G. Zabald. Most of us, said Austerlitz, know nothing about moths, except that they eat holes in carpets and clothes and have to be kept at bay by the use of camphor and naphthalene. Although, in truth, their lineage is among the most ancient and most remarkable in the whole history of nature. Soon after darkness fell, we were sitting on a promontory 
far above Andromeda Lodge. Behind us, the higher slopes, and before us, the immense darkness out at sea. And no sooner had Alfonso placed his incandescent lamp in a shallow hollow surrounded by heather and lit it, than the moths, not one of which we had seen during our climb, came flying in as if from nowhere, describing thousands of different arcs and spirals and loops until, like snowflakes, they formed a silent storm around the light, while others, wings whirring, crawled over the sheet spread under the lamp, or else, exhausted by their wild circling, settled in the gray recesses of the egg boxes stacked in a crate by Alfonso to provide shelter for them. I do remember, said Austerlitz, that the two of us, Gerald and I, could not get over our amazement at the endless variety of these invertebrates, which are usually hidden from our sight, and that Alfonso let us simply gaze at their wonderful display for a long time. But I don't recollect now exactly what kinds of night-winged creatures landed there besides us. Perhaps they were china marks, dark porcelains and marbled beauties, scarce silver lines or burnished brass, green foresters and green adelas, white plumes, light arches, old ladies and ghost moths. But at any rate, we counted dozens of them, so different in structure and appearance that neither Gerald nor I could grasp it at all. Tell me why you chose that. So this is just an incredibly beautiful passage. And throughout Austerlitz, I have, I drew like a teardrop in the margin whenever I started crying. It's such a moving book to me. So it is a, the main character, Austerlitz, was removed from his home in Prague during World War II as a very young child. And he took a kinder transport to the UK and his parents ended up dying in concentration camps. And so a lot of the book, it's Proustian in a way, he's remembering his childhood in England And yet there's always this sort of hole where he doesn't know what his life could have been like in Prague if he could have stayed with his family. And so in this scene, he's remembering a childhood experience with the family that adopted him. And although Zabald is an incredibly, you know, way beyond my capacity, elegant writer um, with so many layers and filtered layers in his writing, what I found so inspiring about this passage in a way I could learn from is Um, the intensity of the memory, the longing, the lists, lists of different types of moths. And also, I really appreciate his use of summary. Dialogue is very difficult in writing because it can be a direct transcription. Um, And I feel there's a lot of pressure on dialogue because you can be totally accurate to the world. But these long summary passages that he's so, so amazing at are a unique a unique thing that fiction can do. And so this beautiful nature passage is, you know, it's combination of the way it's written and its subject matter, experiencing the world in a new way, putting a lamp down and watching the moths gather and really appreciating them for the first time. You know, this is the kind of thing that in the Ash family, Harmony is able to see nature and be up close to nature in the way she always longed for. So the subject matter too is, is quite close to my heart. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky to write or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. I will read from a a point in the novel where Dice, the leader, tells Harmony that something terrible has happened to her mother. Your mother was there too, unfortunately. My mind heaved in every direction. She didn't want to give us the earrings, he said, as you can imagine, even though we told her it was to support you. I wish you hadn't said that, I said, 
What if she reports us? Why did you tell her you knew me? I'd been searching for the right emotion and now I found it. Rage, pure, hot rage. And so there was, how can I put it, some conflict. He tilted his head. He was perfectly still. She wouldn't help us. And she got out a gun. Did you know she had one? The trees on the ridge were afflicted by a wind that pressed them flat. The wind rushed around the house, around the tree, and everything flowed in its wake. Dice's tone was lilting. We didn't have a choice in the end. I felt my head flowing off my shoulders like a comet, past the tree, the house, the porch, and the snow. And why did you choose that? Well, this was truly extremely difficult to write, and I still don't know if I... um. If I have succeeded, it changed a lot in revision. The idea is that in this passage, the main character has to be, you know, has to believe that something bad happened to her mother, but she also has to want to stay with the family. She has to believe that it's her fault, but not so much that she leaves. She has to see the cult as the solution. And then also, this has to fit in with the plot of the book, because this is a kind of event, you know, a mother being in danger or a mother dying, that can be the plot of an entire book. And this has to be somehow incorporated with the rest. Um, so one thing that I did in early drafts is I d left out all of the narrator's reactions um, because there's something about the Ash family that's pretty pulpy and thrillery. Um, there's definitely murder in it. You know, people are making very dramatic decisions all the time. And it's hard to keep thinking of new ways to say, my heart pounded, or I was terrified. And so here I was trying to strike a careful balance between um, a reaction that is in proportion to the event that has occurred, um, but also not so much that she immediately you know, runs away or, or totally loses faith in the family. And um, it goes on from there, but those moments, the way that Dice the leader is kind of teasing her, um, those, yeah, it, it went through a lot of different versions. Where do you write? So I write from where I'm talking to you, which is um, a studio apartment in Brooklyn. And it was such a good idea to move to my own place. I always lived with roommates, um, but then I, I just had to budget for it and stop traveling so much. And now that I live in my own little apartment, um, I... I love writing just from here. I used to write on the subway and in coffee shops and in libraries, but having my own personal space has really made a big difference for how much I'm able to focus. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? So I actually have a full-time job in New York. And the other day, one of my colleagues said to me, I can't believe you identify mostly as a writer because I never see that side of you. And I found this very touching because, you know, I do feel like a writer most of all. Um, but it's so helpful to have a day job because I'm in contact with a different value system from the literary one. So it helps me balance, balance out. And um, on, I also usually feel that I do a better job writing when I'm under constraints. I think if I were totally free to focus entirely on writing, I might write a lot less than I do. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, there are two people. One, the key one is my friend Eve, who I met at my MFA program at Brooklyn College. And um, they're a totally different kind of writer from me. Very funny, where I tend to be kind of lugubrious in my writing. Um, and very, very good at dialogue, where I find dialogue 
impossible to write. And um, their advice always pushes my work far in a different direction and then I can pair back. And then the other person I tend to show my writing to is my colleague, Michael, at my day job. And he is a very, very widely read philosopher person who's very uninterested in contemporary fiction. So again, he brings something totally new when he is reading a draft of my work. How have you dealt with rejection? Um, rejection is very hard, but I also know that if my slightly younger self were listening to this, she would be irritated if I talked about how hard rejection is because I'm so, so fortunate and grateful that, I, um, that I'm able to publish The Ash Family. So I'm grateful to my editor, Emily Graff and Simon and & Schuster for picking up the book. And before I knew that I'd be able to get it published, I think rejection was even harder because I was always so worried that I wouldn't be able to publish anything. And then the other thing I'll say about rejection is the thing where I really feel like total terror as a writer is not rejection, but it's when I don't know what my next project is. Because for me, in order to write a book, I need to be obsessed with something and also feel that I can speak to whatever it is. And um, it took me five years. So I actually wrote a lot of this book in 2013 and 2014. And so, yeah, four and a half or five years before I felt like I could think of another topic to write, write on that could sustain an, a novel's worth of interest. So once I have that project, I feel I can manage anything. It, so long as I can write it, it's okay. Rejection's okay. But it's that period when I'm like, I don't know if I'll ever recharge these batteries and, and be able to think of anything else to write that that's really the difficult, psychologically difficult time. And what is your favorite word? Oh, <laughs> my favorite word is definitely chocolate. Because as soon as I say it, I feel I must eat chocolate. It's like a magic spell word. It's very, very powerful. And um, I one more thing about words. I really recommend this resource called the Online Etymology Dictionary, which will show you the extremely ancient roots of words. I don't, you know, I'm not into like uh, placing a lot of importance on the etymological roots of words, um, but it's so fascinating to look up your favorite things and see them all the way back to Proto-Indo-European. But this word chocolate, um, you know, originated, it seems, with the Aztecs. And I think that's also a beautiful thing about it. Um, we don't have very many words from them. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Molly Dektar, author of the novel The Ash Family. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.